Amen. Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> Excuse me. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, uh, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Well, as we continue our verse-by-verse Bible study through the uh, book of Acts, we come to Acts 6. And to me, Acts 6 is a very interesting uh, chapter in the Bible because it's in this chapter that we first see men being raised up for ministry. Men that were not part of the original group of followers of Jesus Christ. And the so-called Hellenists that were introduced to this, uh, the Hellenists that were introduced to in this chapter, just so you know, um, they were either Greeks that were converted to Judaism or they were Hebrews who had lived out of uh, the nation of Israel for many generations. And as a result, they've forgotten the Hebrew language. Now they only spoke Greek. I mean, uh, the Hellenists, they embraced the Greek culture and also their manner of of dress. But all of these people, they're Christians. All of them are Christians. They're believers in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. And uh, they probably came to Christ after going to Jerusalem, hearing Peter preach there at the day of Pentecost. They were part of that 3,000 souls that were added to the church. But there was this divide between the two groups, okay? The Hebrew Jews, they tended to look down upon the Hellenists, considering them as second-class Jews. Uh, They were seen as, you know, the unspiritual compromisers with the Greek culture. But the Hellenists, they regarded the Hebrew Jews as the, holier-than-thou traditionalists. And what we need to understand is that everyone in the church at this time is Jewish, right? Whether they are Hebrew Jews or Hellenists, they were all Jews because salvation, you'll recall, went out to the Jew first and then Acts chapter 8 to the Samaritans and then Acts chapter 9 to the Gentiles. And these uh, uh, Acts chapter 10, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles. And these seven men who are going to be raised up for ministry here in this chapter, they actually probably are all Greeks, 
Okay, at least they all have Greek names. So in this chapter that we have before us, this is the first time we see new converts being raised up for ministry in this new church. Okay, and if you're like me, you know, you have a deep desire to serve the Lord. You want to glorify God. And so there's a lot here in this, uh, these few verses that are before us, a lot here for us to learn uh, about finding out uh, our place of service within the church. So Acts chapter 1, uh, it's, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now in those days when the number of disciples were multiplying. Now, it's interesting to me uh, to see how God works in his body, the church, because it's a very similar way in which that he works in each one of our lives. Now, you'll recall back in Acts chapter 2, we saw about 3,000 souls were added to the number of believers. And then just a few verses after that, we read that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And here in Acts chapter 6, we read that the number of the disciples were multiplying. But between the addition and the multiplication, uh, we see God doing some subtraction there in Acts chapter 5, okay? And it's actually something that's not uncommon to see in the church as a whole today, uh, painful periods of subtraction. And it happens to be something that we see in our walks with the Lord too, okay? God wants to do a great work in our lives. And there are times... You know, there's old habits that need to be let go of. Um, old things that we're hanging on to that, that needs to be let go of. And uh, old ways that need to maybe be removed, right? Before God can really begin multiplying his blessing in our lives, right? Sometimes we need to come before the Lord on our knees and confess that those issues that he's revealing to us, that he's showing to us, that they're wrong. That those things that he's revealing to us are things that grieve his spirit. The hidden sins that are displeasing to him. You know, uh, we need to come to him and we need to surrender those things to him. Those things that he's fingering or pointing out in our lives, right? When we do that, he then is able to begin to remove those things in our life. It's then that he uh, can begin to multiply his blessing in our lives, revealing his heart to us, his plan and his purpose for our lives. In Acts chapter 5, we saw that the Lord had to remove hypocrisy from the church, right? Before he could begin to really pour out his blessing, right? And I know for myself, you know, the Lord has been showing me that he desires a greater surrender in my life. Right? And it's through a greater surrender to him that he's able to remove attitudes and actions uh, that prevent him from taking me deeper uh, into a relationship with him. Right? But our natural man doesn't really want that. Right? We don't want to let go of uh, these things. Right? Uh, we don't like to be broken before him because it's a painful process to be broken. Right? And so we naturally are, are repelled by that. It repulses us. But allowing the Lord to remove deep-seated um, attitudes and actions in our lives, allowing him to break down walls of separation that we've built up, you know, uh, where we've pigeonholed things uh, that aren't good for us, 
you know, things we do knowing that they're not right, which we, we, we don't want other people to see, things that we know aren't pleasing to the Lord. You know, it's, it's what's necessary to just come and surrender those things. It's what's necessary to receive from him multiplied blessing. And it's part of the process of being transformed into his image. Surrender to the Lord blesses him and it benefits us. David said in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The idea of surrender is opening up and letting God search our hearts, right? Willing to let go of old ways, of secret sins and bad habits. You know, we are completely safe in trusting ourselves to a Savior who gave himself for us, gave his life in order to save us. You know, we never have to uh, fear, never have to fear allowing the Lord to search our hearts, allowing him to bring us to a place where, he, where we're completely broken before him. You know what? We can rest in those nail-pierced hands, right? Allow him to love us and to remove uh, from our lives hidden wounds, and, uh, you know, unflattering attitudes and, and habits so that he then can add and multiply his blessings to our lives, right? And lead us into a deeper, closer relationship with him. You know, it's the, the work that he wants to do in his body, the church. And it's the work he wants to do in each one of us individually. He wants to do that in you. He wants to do that in me. To... to for his praise and to his uh, glory. It says in verse 1, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hellenists, by, uh, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were being uh, neglected in the daily distribution. You know, it seems to me that Satan's attack uh, on the church, it just seems to come in waves. And then it comes from various uh, directions. Uh, Ultimately, Satan's goal is to destroy the church as well as every follower of Jesus Christ. That's his goal. And we saw back in Acts uh, chapter, uh, what, um, you know, four, uh, we saw the first attack was um, through intimidation and persecution, right? You know, we first saw Peter and John arrested and we saw that they were severely threatened and commanded by the religious leaders, not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, right? They commanded them, and they threatened them. And then shortly after that, they arrest all 12 of the disciples, and they beat them. And the second wave of attack, it came uh, through an insider attack. The enemy tried to introduce hypocrisy into the church through the acts of Ananias and Sapphira. And now we see him trying to Divide and conquer. That's the tactic that's before us today. And we see here he's trying to drive a wedge between the believers. Murmuring began to rise up because the Hellenists felt that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, what the Hellenists saw, it may have just been an honest oversight. 
right? The reality is anytime you get a group of people together, uh, and, and this is a fairly large group of people at this time, uh, but anytime you get a group of people together, things can be misunderstood and they can be taken and perceived as a slight, right? And when that happens, Satan's right there. He tries to magnify it. He tries to blow it out of proportion. Satan loves to use unintentional wrongs to drive wedges between believers, right? What did she mean by that? You know, I said hello to him and he just ignored me. You know, they're always doing stuff together and they never seem to include me. You know, we always have them over to our house and and they've never invited us to their house. Uh, You know, Satan is all too happy to magnify unintentional wrongs, perceived slights, to just blow them out of proportion. And he seeks to, to bring division into the body through this tactic, right? And he'll use conflicts. He'll use misunderstanding. He'll use assumptions. He'll use presumptions, right, to bring about division in the church. But the way that we are able to avoid division in the church the way that we're able to nullify his attack is by loving one another, by esteeming each other uh, as better than ourselves, by looking out not only for our own interests, but also the interests of our, our brothers and sisters, right? By letting this mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, it says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples uh, and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve the tables. This was pure wisdom on part of the apostles. Right? One of the hardest lessons to learn is ministry is ministering according to the Spirit, not according to the need. Right? Uh, the apostle understood the call of God That was upon their life. And they didn't want to be distracted from it. The enemy is always seeking to distract us from doing those things that God has called us to do. Right? One example that I know all of you can relate to is our quiet time with the Lord. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, God has called us to come to him and spend meaningful time in his presence. To learn of him. To yoke up. Uh, with him, so to speak, and to be men and women of the word. But, you know, when we try to stop and take time to sit down and and just spend time with the Lord, all of a sudden, what happens? The phone begins ringing. You know, man, I remember something that I forgot that I need to do, right? Uh, Something demands our attention right now. I mean, it's without fail. There always seem, again, at least in my life, Without fail, there always seems to be this endless procession of distractions every time I want to sit down with the Lord, right? And I'm sure that that's the way it is with you. As soon as you want to sit down and read your Bible and pray, all of a sudden, you know, nothing but distractions. You know, um, well, it's something that we need to guard against. Something that we need to guard against. And it's one of the reasons why, personally, I do my devotion Uh, You know, the time that I get alone with the Lord in order to spend time with him, first thing in the morning, that's when I do mine. It's early in the morning that I've purposely set aside time to just sit with the Lord and commune with him. Just sit at his feet and hear from him. And and you know what? It's kind of, uh, maybe it's, um, I don't know, ironic. 
I'm seeking to hear from the Lord. So what do I do? I put earplugs in my ears. I put earplugs in my ears. I take my phone. I silence it. I turn it upside down so I don't see it light up, right? I don't hear it so that I'm not distracted so I can concentrate on just being with Jesus, right? And the same is true in ministry. I mean, there is always something that needs to be done. There's always something that's pressing. There's always something that's demanding our attention, something that's urgent. And the temptation is to respond. This is a hard lesson to learn. Minister according to the Spirit, not according to the need. Because the temptation is to respond to the need, right? To, to pick up the phone, right? To, to uh, meet that urgent need in the moment, right? And we can find ourselves, you know, running around just busy, very, very busy, but ineffective for the Lord, right? Missing out on just sitting at His feet, hearing His voice, right? I remember a pastor friend of mine, he used to use the illustration of a chicken and his, with its head cut off. I mean, uh, I've never seen a, a chicken with its head cut off, but he would say, you know, they run around frantically, all crazy-like. I've seen, I've heard stories that that's true, uh, but they don't accomplish anything. And the reason why is because they're separated from the head. Right? God wants us to be in touch with Him. He wants us to be in tune with Him, connected to Him. He wants us to focus on the things that He's calling us to do. He wants us to be, I had a, another pastor friend, he would say, Gary, you know, the Lord wants you to be a sharpshooter, not a machine gunner. Right? He doesn't want you spraying everything with bullets while you're hitting nothing. Right? The apostles they, they said it's not wise that we should leave the word of God. And it's important for us to understand that this is the calling that's upon all of us as believers. We're called to be students of the word, to give time to the word in our lives. Well, they say it's not wise, verse 2, that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, this doesn't mean that the apostles saw practical ministry, you know, the serving of tables as something uh, that was less of a calling or something that was beneath them, right? They just understood that they couldn't do it all and do it well, right? So they're just placing a priority uh, for their time. They're placing a priority on their time in order to fulfill their calling. And in verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. It's in this verse, right, that we see the apostles giving the call to, to uh, see men raised up as deacons, right, within the church. And I think that there's a lot of confusion in the church today, generally speaking, regarding church administration and governance. It's good to have people in the church who are able to affirm those uh, who are being considered for ministry position. It's important to look for guys who are well spoken of by the church. But that's not the only consideration. There's also, they also have to be of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit. Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he adds to this list of requirements and gives us very specific qualifications for elders and uh, deacons. Keep your finger here in Acts and turn over with me to 1 Timothy 
chapter 3. 1 Timothy uh, is one of the pastoral epistles, right? Uh, in these pastoral epistles, Paul tells his young protégés, Timothy and Titus, uh, he, he spells out for them just how the church is to operate. And we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, read along with me. It says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, okay? The word that's used here, bishop, is the same word for elder, right? It's, it literally means overseer. And it could be used interchangeably with the word for pastor or shepherd. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, Paul goes on and he gives the qualifications for the deacons. Verse 8, likewise, or in, in similar manner, in a similar way, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let those who uh, also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, again, in a similar way, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their households well. For those who uh, have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, again, the, the, the word elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, shepherd are words that can be used interchangeably uh, in the New Testament. Be, uh, deacons and elders in the church have the same basic requirements with one exception. I don't know if you saw it, right? Elders are to have an ability to teach the word of God, right? Or, uh, but both of the men are supposed to have a good reputation. Literally, it's uh, of good witness. They're to be good men in character and conduct. Uh, they're to be faithful men. They're to be full of the Holy Spirit. That is, they're, they're to be guided by the Holy Spirit and, and in ways that are evident to people that are viewing their life within the church. They're to be full of the Spirit. And that means they're to be on fire for Jesus. Right? They're to be spiritually minded men. Both of them are to be full of wisdom. You know, led by the Holy Spirit and their decisions. But the difference is the ministry that they're called to, okay? The elder, pastor, bishop, shepherd, overseer of the church is called to more of a spiritual teaching ministry, which is reflected in the comments of Acts 
chapter 6, verse 4. You can turn back to Acts 6 and look at it. Verse 4, the apostles say, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word, right? It's the duty, really, it's the, it's more than a duty. It's, it's a great privilege, right? For the elder pastor, bishop, overseer of the church, the shepherd of the church to devote themselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Where the deacon's service within the church is focused on the spiritual, practical ministry, right? You know, and, and that also is a great privilege. One is not better than the other. We can never think that. They're just different. And it says in verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. Now, now verse 5, that, that little phrase there is in reference to what the apostles said in verse 3. What was pleasing to them is to seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over the business. Verse 5 is not hinting at the fact that it pleased the people uh, as if that was a way to make decisions within the church. The church is not to be run by majority rule. Because there can be carnal people in the church like Ananias and Sapphira were at this time, right? But what we see here is God's Spirit giving the apostles wisdom. And that's what's pleased uh, the people within the church. It was a confirmation that their, their pleasure was a confirmation of God's, God's heart and wisdom, right? And we must never fall into the trap. I mean, this is a problem for a lot of churches. We must never fall in the trap that we're to be led by popular opinion. That's how churches get watered down. And that's a problem in the church as a whole today, right? Verse 5 continues, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit. Stephen will become the first martyr of the church. We'll see later in this chapter that he knew the word of God and his wisdom couldn't re be refuted by the enemies of the church. So what do the enemies of the church do? They kill him, right? And it goes on, it says the second man on the list is Philip. Philip goes on to be an evangelist, right? He had four daughters that were prophetesses, right? And Philip was a, was a godly man whom God used mightily to spark this radical uh, revival, this radical work of God among the Samaritans. His ministry started out as something that maybe some might consider, you know, not very glamorous, uh, something not very important. But he, he did it faithfully as unto the Lord, and God raised him up for greater things. Faithfulness in the little things leads uh, to God giving us greater responsibilities right? Greater opportunities to bring glory to his name. The third name on the list is Prochorus. Church history tells us that he became a, an assistant to the Apostle John later in life. And after John's death, he became the bishop of uh, Nicodema, a large growing church. Uh, and later too, he also was martyred. Verse 5 continues with uh, the names of the remaining men chosen as deacons, Nicanor, T Timon, Parmenas, uh, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. We don't really know anything about these men, but what we do know about them 
is that they were men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, it says. And at this point, you may be tempted to say, well, wait a minute, Gary. I mean, you said the deacons, they were, they were given uh, to practical service, not to teaching of the word. And we see, you know, at least in the case of Stephen, Philip, and Prochorus, according to your, your testimony, they were teachers. They were teaching, right? They were expounding the word. And you'd be correct in saying that. That is true. But what we see God frequently do is after he saves a man or a woman, he allows them to serve in the church in some capacity, to show themselves faithful, to learn about servanthood, right? And, and the, the uh, ministry, the word just simply means service, right? Uh, as a man or a woman shows himself faithful servants to the Lord, serving the body, God raises them up and calls them to greater service. And I believe that that's what Paul is talking about. We saw it in the verses, 1 Timothy 3, 10 and 13. Verse 10 uh, says, But let, those, let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. And then in verse 13, For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Right? We must never forget, there are no small ministries within the church, within the body of Christ. Every ministry within the church should be done by people of good reputation. That's who we should be as Christians. People of good reputation. Ministry should be done by people who love the Lord Jesus Christ who are wise in regards to spiritual issues. Every ministry within the church is to be done spiritually. And in verse 6, it says, Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. We usually do it the other way around. We usually lay hands on people, then pray. But that's not what the apostles did. They prayed first, right? They sought the Lord. They asked him what his heart was in the matter. And then they didn't lay hands on these men until they heard from the Lord. And that's the wise thing to do. That's the safe thing to do. 1 Timothy 5.22. Again, Paul instructing his young protege, Timothy, he says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. You know, it's easy to put the wrong person in a position and if God has not called them to that position, it's very hard to remove them. And it can be devastating on a church. And verse 7 says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Faithful men and women who are loving towards one another, you know, who are given to the word, filled with the Holy Spirit, having good reputations, men and women that are busy about the work of the ministry, when that occurs, then and only then, I believe, the word of God will spread and the number of disciples will be multiplied. And verse 7, it continues and says, and great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And what I take away from that is when the church is functioning like it's supposed to, 
people from unexpected walks of life are saved and added to the church. And, and that's what brings tremendous glory to the Lord. Changed lives. I think it's important for us to understand that ministry is not a spectator sport. Okay, we need to be involved. There's no breaks or retirement from being a Christian. Hey, there's retirement from being a contractor, from being a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, whatever. There's retirement. Enjoy your retirement. We don't retire as Christians. You know, we don't take breaks being a Christian. Christianity is not what I do. Christian is who I am. There's no taking breaks from breathing. I don't want to... That's not in my notes, but I'm getting off on a soapbox, right? You know what? Each of us need to be actively engaged in the church. Each of us need to be focusing on and seeking to fulfill the call of God on our lives, right? We need to be about the Father's business inside and outside of the church. You might say, I want to be, but I don't know where I fit in, you know, or, or I don't know what God uh, has called me to do. Or I'm not sure what uh, gifts God has given me. Well, I think the first thing to recognize and to do is what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. The word beseech there, it means to beg. It means to earnestly and fervently implore. It means to plead with. It's as if Paul is on his knees begging us, saying, I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The first step we have to engage in to fulfill the call of God in, in our life is to present our bodies to the Lord, to give your life to the Lord, wholly, completely, holding nothing back, keeping nothing in reserve, right? And Paul said, that's the reasonable, or you've heard me say it before, it can also be translated logical thing to do. It's the logical thing to do because of what Jesus has done for us. It's the reasonable thing to do in light of eternity, right? We're to serve our Lord. We're to seek to glorify Him in this world because of what He's done for us. We love Him because He first loved us. Do you, do you watch the news? I love watching the news. I mean, I tell you what, watch the news. And then... Let it minister to you that we are racing toward the return of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus could return for his church any day now. One day, all of us, we're going to step into eternity. Right? And the Bible teaches us that our rewards, which we will receive there in heaven, will be a direct result of our life's, life's work here on earth. Right? Someone may say, you know, I don't really care much about rewards, just as long as I'm in heaven. You know, if that's you, please forgive me. But that's a, the most foolish thing I think I've ever heard. You know what? Take it from me. You're going to care about rewards. You know, when everyone else is casting their crowns down at the feet of Jesus, 
you're most certainly going to care about rewards then when you have nothing to offer him. Why should I give myself as a living sacrifice now? Because of what it does for us presently. Because of what it does for us now. There is without a doubt no greater joy, no greater excitement to be had in this life than to live a life led by the Holy Spirit. You know what? To speak his word to a ruined life and then to pray with that person to receive Jesus Christ, I'll never get tired of that. Oh, if I lead one more person to the Lord, oh my goodness. No, never. To pray with a person that's sick and then see Jesus bring healing to their body and to their soul, I'll never get tired of that. Do you understand when you pray for the sick, you actually feel better? I mean, it's a great blessing. It's so wonderful to be used by the Lord. And Paul said, writing to the Corinthian church, he now said, now, uh, now concerning spiritual gifts, brother, I don't want you to be ignorant. He's talking about gifts that Jesus gives to us, that God gives to us for the church. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 6 through 8, we have gifts lifted for, listed for us. So turn there, Romans chapter 12, 6 through 8. Let's take a look at the gifts that are listed there for us. Romans 12. Verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You know, if you want to see how these gifts are to operate, you know, or what they're supposed to look like, all you have to do is, is look at Jesus. Prophecy is declaring the truth. It can be either foretelling, uh, you know, God giving you a prophecy about what's coming in the future, what's going to happen in the future. It can also be foretelling, God placing, you know, a Bible verse on your heart. And you speak that uh, verse to a person to encourage them. It's something specifically that God gave you. You know, Jeff this morning gave me a prophecy, something that God spoke to him, and he spoke it forth to me to encourage me. You know, in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, Paul says regarding prophecy, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Right? We see Jesus doing all of these things in John 14 as he speaks to the disciples in the upper room, speaking to them of his departure, going to be with the Father, speaking uh, to them of his return, coming to, to return and take them to himself, right? Encouraging them not to worry, and then exhorting them to keep his commandment to love one another. Ministry is uh, illustrating truth, right? Again, ministry simply means service. And a person with this gift is to illustrate service Right? To illustrate through service God's truth and love. Mark 10, 45, in the King James Version, Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not, 
uh, Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The same verse, New King James translates it this way. For the Son of Man did not come to be served. That's ministry. Didn't come to be ministered unto, but to serve, to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Teaching is clarifying the truth. It's expounding God's word. It's opening it up and explaining it, clarifying it to others. The apostle John said of Jesus, John 1.18, no one has seen God uh, at any time. The only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father, he has declared him, right? The word translated declare there is the Greek word from which we get our word exegesis, right? Which just simply means to expound, to explain, to clarify. Jesus has explained, clarified, and revealed the Father to us. That's ministry. Uh, Sorry, that's teaching. The gift of giving is furthering truth. Jesus demonstrated his gift as he gave himself unselfishly on the cross. A person with the gift of giving will give of himself and of his possessions, right, to further the kingdom. Next in that list there in Romans chapter 12 is the gift of teaching. King James Version says uh, ruleth or ruling uh, is what it is. Uh, New King James says leading, you know. Uh, This person is a person that wants to see things done decently in order. You know, he wants to see things done carefully, He wants them done properly. Uh, He's not interested in a job done in a slipshod manner or in a random haphazard way. Theirs is the gift of administration in governing, right? And we see the fullness of this gift uh, in Jesus' life as he fed the 5,000. He had them sit down in the green grass in groups of 50 so that it would be easier to distribute the food. The next gift was mercy. It's radiating truth. The person with this gift hurts when other people hurts. This person empathizes with the poor in spirit. They're lowly in heart. This person radiates the love of Jesus to others. You know who I think of when I think of this? Pastor Ron. Pastor Ron, man, he was a radiator of the love of Christ. And you know what? He's reaping rewards as we speak. God bless Ron and Judy. Again, this gift uh, was witnessed in Jesus as he deals with the woman who was caught up in the very act of adultery. He extended mercy and tenderness to her, right? Displaying the love of God uh, for her. Exhortation is recalling truth, right? The Greek word translated exhortation is paraclesis. It's the root for the word paraclete, right? It's when the truth is given, it's recalled, it come alongside another to motivate them to action. Jesus said, John 14, 26, but the helper, and that's the word there that we're looking at, paraclete or comforter, uh, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance um, all things that I've said to you. 
You know, oftentimes people ask, you know, hey, what's my gift? And I don't know what your gift is unless I see you um, exercising it. But if I died tomorrow and you took over the church, what would you do differently? What would you change? Right? If you said, hey, we need a fresh call to righteousness and holiness, um, I would... If I was the pastor, I would proclaim truth boldly and seek to take us deeper uh, in holy living and higher spirituality. Then your gift would probably be the gift of prophecy. You know, if you said, I'd take us deeper into the word in order to reveal the Lord's heart through more Bible studies during the week. Well, then you probably possess the gift of teaching. If you said, we need to help people practically. We need to help moms with kids. We need to help the Joneses paint their house. We need to make sure the sick in our fellowship have meals taken to them. Then your gift is probably the gift of ministry. If you said we need to raise money in order to see missionaries sent out and, and ministries funded, then most likely your gift is a gift of giving. Whatever the Lord puts on your heart, whatever he shows you that needs attention, that's where your gift probably falls in that area. You know, I have a heart to teach the Bible, to disciple people, uh, and be involved in missions, taking the gospel to the lost. And it's in that context, my gifts produce the most amount of fruit for the Lord. And when I get out of that lane, and sometimes I get out of that lane, I get distracted, I get busy, and I do minister, uh, minister to the need at times. But when I get caught up in trying to meet needs in my own strength, <clears throat> you know, meet needs that I'm not equipped to handle, that's when frustration and discouragement begin to set in. If you were to say, hey, we need to visit the sick in hospital and pray for them, you know, we need to be there for them, then you're, you're probably a person with the gift of uh, mercy. Each of us here this morning, each of us watching online, each of us in the body of Christ, each of us have a gift. And the church cannot afford to have you sitting on the sidelines not exercising your gift. That's the reality. Romans 12, verse 4 and 5 says, For as we have many members in one body, but all our members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're one body. We need each other. What would happen if your heart said, you know, I'm not going to show up to work today. How would that bode for you? You know, God, give us, God gives us insight into a situation because he wants us to be part of building the kingdom. That's his heart. That's the theme of Acts. I've said it many times. Ordinary people, the Holy Spirit working through ordinary people like you and I to accomplish extraordinary things. You know, as a pastor, I want to see you actively engaged in service. Why? Because I know the joy that comes with serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As a pastor, I want to help you uh, uh, avoid the mistakes that I've seen, the mistakes that I've made. You know, in 28 years of ministry and 40, 43 years of walking with the Lord, I've made lots of mistakes. I want to help you avoid those things. I want to make it easy for you. Learn from my mistakes. You know, as a church, I encourage you, let's pray. 
Let's ask, ask, let's ask God to reveal his heart to each of us, to show us where we fit into the body. There's a place for all of us, right? Where he would have us serve in the church. The secret to true happiness in life is found in serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through serving his people. Nothing else will, be, will bring a greater sense of joy in our life. Nothing else will bring a greater sense of fulfillment in our life than serving the Lord through serving his people, right? It's the recipe for joy and fulfillment in this life. It truly is. But we have to understand, we must understand, it all starts with Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is good and acceptable and uh, the perfect will of God. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray very strongly that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Your spirit would impress these things on our heart. Our need of surrender. That you can work, Lord. A need of letting go things that inhibit you from working. Lord, a, de a, a desire, a greater desire. Lord, we desire to see you glorified. But Lord, give us a greater desire. Give us a hunger and thirst for things of righteousness, for your kingdom. Lord, let us be the light you want us to be. A light on the hill that cannot be hidden. Lord, work in us, Lord. We love you. We have given our life to you, Lord. Help us hold nothing back. Help us to be living sacrifices. Totally given over to you. In your hands. For your control. For your glory, for your praise, we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.